1 Kings 19, um, verses 15 to 21. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel and Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing the twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. We are then skipping forward to 2 Kings 2, verse 8. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided out to the right and the left. The two of them crossed over onto the dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father! The chariots and horsemen of Israel and Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. Come with me, would you, in a journey into your mind's eye. You are an empty room. Okay, I want you to imagine uh, an empty room, so said Larry Crabb in a, in a book a few decades ago. And at different points in your life, you do things in that room. So as a teenager, with all your ambition for the world, you have furniture to create to fill that empty room. As a teenager, you're filled with rage at the injustice of the world and at your hair when you look in the mirror. There's no one in our household, I promise you. But um, you're filled with rage at the injustice in the world. You've got ambition. You've got hopes. You've got dreams. You, you've got uh, tests to take and bills that your parents pay for you to enjoy. That's the teenage years. You're furnishing this empty room, which is your life, with furniture that you're making. You're making an identity for yourself. Then the 20s come. From the confusion of the teenage years, you're in the 20s and you've got furniture of your own identity that needs to be moved around. There are relationships that 
need to be navigated and there is a piece of furniture that needs to be replaced you've got ambitions in your hearts you you can change the world that's in your 20s and the 30s come with the 30s come responsibility again furniture has moved around but as an opportunity arises and with a, a career ladder that's there for you to reach to the stars, the trouble is that pressures of life increase. And so the furniture needs to be moved around again, whether it's uh, fiscal or whether it's personal or whether it's in the workplace or on the sporting field. Pressures increase. And then come the 40s. In the 40s, please don't leave. I'm not trying to depress you. In the 40s, um, pressures increase once again. And you have this realization with the midlife crisis that I'm facing at this very moment that there, there are fewer years ahead of you than you've already had in this world. You're dealing with disappointment of life. And that's just your 40s. When the 50s hit, then it's a period of reevaluation, And there's also a fair bit of regret to deal with. That's your 50s. And then you hit the 60s. And golly, in the 60s, I think you realize that there are terrible mistakes that you've made in your life. There are wasted years. There are relationships that you wish you could erase. There are mistakes you wish you could remove from your life, from your room. Whatever decade you face at this minute, there is a core question that we all wrestle with, which is why am I here why am I here? What's my purpose to exist in the world? We all face the same questions, regardless of the decade we are in the room, <laughs> physically, but also in the room in my illustration from the wonderful pen of Larry Crabb a few years back. I mean, here's the stark contrast and the, que contrast and the questions that we're wrestling with. Where do I fit in the world? How do I make sense of all that happens in my world? And what about my core identity? Am I just a collection of cells? Am I just water and a bit of iron that you can kind of melt down and sell for £2.50? Did I just happen or do I have a purpose on this planet that revolves the third rock around the sun? If you are an accident, if God does not exist, then the answer is yes, you're just an accident. You have no purpose. You're not going to make any difference. It's kind of a nihilistic view of the world. There's no purpose to life. But then in comes the Bible. And the Bible says, no, you do not live in a world where there's no creator. You don't live in a world where there's no purpose. You exist solely for God's glory. Life is hard. No matter what decade you find yourself in at this point. But to find meaning, to answer those huge questions of life as you move the furniture around your room you need to hear the call of God if you don't hear the call of God then you are nihilistic you are without purpose you're without self-understanding and you wonder what's the point of living so here's the call of God that comes into the life of Elisha through the ministry of Elijah. And I'm just going to apologize now. I know I'm going to get them wrong at some point. I thought Sue did a great job of reading it correctly from the Bible. But I'm going to get them mixed up. So there's the spoiler alert now. But Elisha receives the call of God through the ministry of Elijah. And there's two passages. 1 Kings 19, where we get the start of the story. 2 Kings 2, 
where we get the end of the story and the continuation of the prophetic ministry of God through the life of Elijah that then gets transferred to Elisha. And we need to grasp at the core that gives us purpose and meaning and identity in God's world. And we hear it through God's word. It's the need of a call. It's the reality of a call. It's the power of the call. Need, reality, power. Here's the need. 1 Kings 19. What do we know about Elisha? Look at verse 19. First of all, he is rich. We could say he is stinking rich. He comes from a wealthy family. Look at verse 19. The Bible is so economic with its words. You need to be very attentive. It says, sentence 19 of 1 Kings 19. Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now, 12 times 2, that's 24 for the uh, accountants in the room. And he was driving the last pair. Now, he could only do that if he had significant wealth. And so here he is with all that the world can offer, and he's driving these oxen, and then something happens. Verse 19, Elijah comes along, and he puts his prophetic, his prophet's cloak around him. That's Elijah's way of saying, I'm calling you, Elisha, to take up my mantle and to be God's prophet, taking God's word to God's people in God's world. That's a prophetic task, and that's just from sentence 19. Now think about this cloak. It was stinking. It was raggedy tag. It wasn't something glorious and great. It would have been mothballed and torn through thorns and stinking with sweat. Might have some blood on it because it's been on Elijah's shoulders for many years. He's been on the run for three years. Look at the top of the chapter. 1 Kings 19 verse 2. Remember Jezebel? A few songs written about her, not least by Sade from the 80s, showing my age. You've got uh, Jezebel and she's just cut a covenant, so to speak, with herself and with her gods saying, I will not rest until your head's on a spike. I want to remove your head from your shoulders. I want you dead. And I promise my gods that I'm going to do it. So he's on the run, he's in the wilderness. In other words, this cloak that Elisha is going to have put on his shoulders is a mantle of burden and responsibility. It wouldn't be something very pleasant. It hasn't been to the dry cleaners recently. It's dirty, it's foul. But Elijah is not just calling Elisha to be a prophet from sentence 19. He's saying this. Elisha, God's call is upon your life. And therefore, I want you to leave all that you know behind. I want you to leave your wealth, your comfort, your status, all your resources. I want you to leave that behind. And I want you to follow God. All of that self-reliance, all of that confidence that you've got money in the bank and the credit card is never an issue. I want you to take God at his word. And I want you to take on it for you not just my cloak but with that cloak symbolically a life where you trust God no matter what a life when you trust God in poverty not just in plenty I want you to leave all your power and all your status with the plow and God's call comes onto Elisha and he's revolutionized did you notice that how so well what does he do look at uh, sentence 21 God's call comes from Elijah to Elisha. The cloak goes on his shoulders. And what does he do? He does not liquidate his assets and increase his wealth as a backstop. He doesn't take his private yacht and float to Turkey 
when no one can get him. What he does, he burns his plow and his yoke and his oxen. And then he throws a massive party, sentence 21 of 1 Kings 19. It's not just for himself. It's not just a slap-up meal. I mean, weddings in the ancient Near East were a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence when you get all of your friends and family, all of the town around. But you would never eat meat like this. So this was like a grade up from this cultural centerpiece. This was something else. This is only possible if God comes into your heart and you are revolutionized. So you don't liquidate your assets for yourself. This is a thanksgiving offering to God. Saying, I no longer live for myself. Now I'm going to live for you. I'm no longer going to trust in my own resources that you've given to me and my family. Now I'm going to trust you implicitly. I no no longer have any status in the world other than a prophet of God. All my clothes, I'm just going to burn the lot. As a thanksgiving offering, I'm going to trust you. He burns his plow. Just think how we're tempted to live in a very unelisha way. This is what you live for. I want you to live, says our world, for your, these are not all F's, but it's close, for your phone. I know that does not begin with F. You can live for the best phone. Over a thousand pounds in your pocket for a gadget. I really am getting old. You can live for your phone. You can live for your figure. You can live for your finances. You can live for your family. You can live for your foreign holidays. And then you have a great, fulfilled life. Elisha had a great life. He had all these oxen and all this wealth. And yet he had a deep emptiness in his heart that he wasn't quite yet aware of until Elijah came and brought God's word to him. There's this inner revolution that's happened that's turned his life upside down and his priorities upside down. So he wants to live for God and for God alone. You can live for riches. You can have all that the world wants, all those F's and a PH as well. And yet you can be profoundly empty. That's what David Saul's, or sorry, David Samuel said. David Samuels wrote an article in the New York Times called The Me Millennium. He said it's taken four or five hundred years, but what we've done as a culture is we've got rid of God and we've put me at the center of our world. When God is at the center, when God is no longer at the center of our world, when all that we want matters, where do we find our identity? God's no longer at the center of our priorities and what we live for. We are. We've said we don't want God. We said that it's important to be free. You have to be free to be yourself. It's called expressive individualism and it's everywhere. You have to be free to do what you want. And here's David Samuels with a quote. By the time my girlfriend and I broke up, I had concluded that the problem wasn't just in sex or high-pressure careers, or guilt, or boredom that comes with serial monogamy, being in a relationship for a long time with one person. David Samuel says, Our inability to imagine a future together was not ours alone before we broke up. It was a symptom of a larger fracture or collapse involving, however, many hundreds of thousands of people in their 20s and in their early 30s as they moved the furniture around their room. They seem to lack any sense of connection with anything larger than their own narrowly personal aims and preoccupations. We were free 
to be whatever we wanted to be and otherwise exist outside of traditional roles. But the trouble was, what came with that was a weightless feeling. With every fundamental human decision my generation has to make. Why bother with life? Why get married, Samuel says? What are families for? And who's to define what a family is anyway? What's he saying? He's saying if there is a God, then I have to do what he built me for. I have a purpose, but I don't have complete freedom. But if I want to be absolutely free, there's nothing I have to do. There's no call a creator can have on me. And there's nothing in between, he says. It's either a purpose that is given to us by God rather than one we create and fashion in our private room, which is our life by ourselves. Or we just live with complete uh, autonomy and freedom, expressive individualism. I do what I want and I make the rules. But then ultimately we're hollow on the inside. This text teaches what the whole Bible teaches, which is we must have a call on our lives. There was an emptiness inside Elisha. He had all these oxen and all this wealth, but he wasn't moping around. He wasn't. He didn't even know there was an emptiness until the call came. And then he stopped living for himself and he started to live for God. And it revolutionized his heart, his wallet, and his priorities. That's why this is a big feast. We all need God's call on our life. Number two. So what does it look like? Here's the reality of the call. It comes in two parts. Here they are. It's being before doing. It's being before doing. The part of being, the call of God, is a general call that everybody in this room and whoever listens to this message receives the same call. It's being before doing. But then the doing is specific. God places specific calls, skill sets, opportunities on each of us. First of all, this, this call to being. Look at Elisha again, 1 Kings 19, verse 20. It says there was an apprenticeship time in the life of Elisha. Elisha then left his oxen and he ran after Elijah. So wait a minute, that must mean that Elijah, I wouldn't say he's sneaky, but he kind of <laughs> comes up behind, a bit like Cato, and he comes up behind and he puts the cloak on uh, Elisha and then it seems like he walks away or runs away passes the baton onto Elisha, and then he moves away. So then Elisha has to kind of leg it after Elijah to say, hey, what do I do now? Wait a minute. He puts the cloak on him and he walks away. He didn't say anything. And so he runs after him to get him. And he asks this question, hey, can I go and kiss my parents goodbye? Can I go and say farewell before I follow God? Then that means I follow you no matter where it takes us. And if you count up the kings that they both served under, this was an 18-year apprenticeship scheme that God sought necessary for Elisha under the ministry of Elijah. So 18-year following round Elijah, and then he served as a prophet of God, Elisha, for 30 years. Now just imagine these uh, gray hairs coming together. Okay, here's a photo of, of some people, and they're talking about their kids. That's all that parents do, right? When they get together, how's your kid? How are they doing? And the older the parent gets, the older the child gets. And so the natural conversation at Greg's or at Costa Coffee or having a walk in the park, and you say, so what's your son doing now? What's your daughter doing now? And just imagine that's happening to Elisha's parents. 
it would have been quite a strange conversation. So, what's your son doing now? Well, he, well he's, he, he's, uh, he's in charge of the guard. He's gone through all the ranks and now he's, he's captain of the guard. What's your daughter doing? Well, well she's married this great guy and, and, and things are going really well and, and his uh, estate is increasing and, and they've just had loads of kids. It's, God's been really kind to them. How's Elisha doing? He's doing an apprenticeship still. Still? How long does it take? What's he got to look? How many years has he done that? Did you say 18? 18 years and he's still, is he going to make anything of himself? It's like the perpetual student, literally. Why 18 years of making breakfast for Elijah, of washing his clothes, of being on the road, of being in hard places? This phrase came back to me this week. The greater the doing, the more important the becoming. The greater the doing, the more important the becoming. Elisha was called to become something. And the call of God comes on everybody and says, you need to be someone. You need to change your identity. And Elisha was called to to be someone like we all are. God calls us all in Christ to be a person of love, a person of justice, a person of wisdom, a person of humility, a person of self-control. God says in Christ to every believer, I will give you my spirit and he will make you what you ought to be. And it's a lifetime work with God as the divine artist making us his workmanship. It might take 18 years before you're able to do anything. But God is in the business of change. He takes rust buckets and uh, no-hopers and he's a fixer-upper. More accurately, he's a transformer to make people more like his son. And it's a lifetime's work. Are you patient enough to be under his loving rule and reign? Because by the time you get to the second passage, 2 Kings chapter 2, 18 years later, the day has finally come. Elijah and Elisha are walking along. Elisha says to Elijah, verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And on first reading, that sounds kind of passive-aggressive maybe. It sounds greedy if another sort of tone is put upon it. I want to be twice as good as you. I've had enough of this apprenticeship scheme. I want to be greater than you. I want my uh, renown to go further than you. I want my Twitter feed to be fuller than yours. I want to be an influencer. Sounds pretty arrogant. What Elisha is really saying, if we read the Bible carefully, is he understands that in ancient Near East, the firstborn, they got twice as much. They got double the inheritance from every other sibling. And so what Elisha is saying is, I want God to use me to be as effective for him as you have been for him. I don't want any more, but I don't want any less. I want God to use me significantly in his service. I want to be equal to you, Elijah. Verse 10, Elijah says, of 2 Kings 2, only if you see me go. And then we have this really famous scene where Elijah is taken up by God and his cloak falls to the ground. Verse 14, something that Elijah did, now Elisha does, which he goes to the Jordan River. And in verse 14, he strikes the water with the cloak. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, and the river parts? And it's God's way of saying, you have it. I've given you what you've asked for. 
you will be as effective for me as Elijah was. Now, how do you answer the call of being, this new identity, this new standing, this inner revolution that's happened? Two things I want you to hear that I think the Bible teaches clearly. If you want to answer the call of God afresh, you need to be prepared to burn your plow. Now, we're not kind of agricultural in our society very much anymore, but you need to burn your plow. It means I'm not going to try this Christianity. I'm not going to put it on like a new welly boot and think, oh, that's the wrong size. I'm going to put it off. I'm not going to try Christianity, and if it works for me, I'll keep going. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs me. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to follow Jesus unconditionally. That's what it means to burn your plow. You don't save a bit of money for the rainy day. You follow him no matter what it costs. It follows Jesus no matter what it looks like. I will follow Jesus no matter how I feel. I will follow Jesus no matter what people say. I will follow Jesus even when the going gets tough. I will follow Jesus no matter where he calls me to go. I will follow Jesus when it's not comfortable. I will follow Jesus unconditionally. That's what it means to follow Jesus and to take God at his word and to answer the call. It's general for us all. And the second thing is you have to burn your plow and then you, you have to become a servant of the word. You have to become a servant of the word. Notice Elisha did not have the Bible. He heard God's voice through God's prophet and he follows him. We have something far better than Elijah. We've got the whole Bible, the whole of God's word delivered to his people throughout this, the decades and the centuries and the millennia. We have something better than Elijah. So you burn your plow, you follow Jesus unconditionally, and you become a servant of the word. That means you read the Bible. That means you listen to the Bible. That means there are places when you come to parts of the Bible and you say, that really offends me. But I know who the God of the Bible is, and so I'm going to pray to him about that and process that with helpful friends. That means you read the Bible and you say, yes, I want to be like that. It's inspirational. This, this book knows me because God wrote it. And if you don't become a servant of the word, you'll never find who God has called you to be. That's the reality of it. That's the being and then there's the doing. Don't worry, it's quicker. It's not just being, it's a, it's a call to do something. 1 Kings 19 verse 15 to 16. This is very interesting. We can hear if we're Christians, we've heard sermons before on the call. And it's always the call. You must go and be a full-time Christian paid person. And that's what the call means. And that's only what the call means. No, it does not. Look at 1 Kings 19 verse 15 to 16. Isn't this interesting? God is speaking to Elijah and he says, I'm going to call these people to do my will in the world. 19, 15 to 16. One of them is Hazel, who's a, a secular king of Syria who God uses to do his will <coughs> in his world. The other one is Jehu. Jehu is going to be the next king of Israel. One of them is Elisha, who God uses to be a prophet of God. In other words, you've got people who are called to full-time Christian ministry. Praise God for that. And then you've got people who serve God in different workplaces around his world. And both receive, all three of them receive, the call of God. So we need to torpedo this understanding that the call of God is only for people that go into full-time Christian paid ministry. 
everybody in the workplace, everybody in the home, regardless of what stage of life you're in, you have the call of God on your life. You're a new person. You're God's workmanship. We're at the start of a new term. We've got so many opportunities in Epsman, Yule, and Stoneley and to the ends of the earth to speak of the Lord Jesus, to share the gospel. We have individual opportunities, individual skills, individual relationships. That's specific. That's the doing. But everybody has the general becoming, the being. Now, where do you get the power to live like that? The need for the call, the reality of the call, and the power. Let's look at this chariot, and let's not sing, swing low. What is this chariot in 2 Kings chapter 2, from where this famous song comes from? Swing low, sweet chariot, and so on. Coming forth to carry me home. This is where the song comes from, the England rugby have stolen. Now, a chariot is not something that's gilded for a coronation. It's not wooden made from gold that you see every decade or so. It's not there just on display. It's, it's not a, a chariot that uh, is beautifully adorned so that you can go through the streets of Vienna behind white horses. A chariot is a really heavy object made from iron that would kill the beasts of burden over time that dragged it along. It was a heavy, demanding job for these oxen or uh, cows or horses to drag behind them this chariot. That's the first thing. Because look what happens with the second thing. It's a unique chariot. This chariot is surrounded by a whirlwind. It's surrounded by uh, clouds that are filled with flashes of fire. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. This is not an ordinary chariot as Elisha tears his clothes in shock. So what's going on is not a coronation. It's the very glory of God. That Elisha sees that God takes his servant to the heavenly realm. Think where else you see someone rip their clothes when they see the splendor of God or, or step on territory where the glory of God has been. Think about Moses. We're in Exodus, we're in chapter 2. God says audibly so that people can hear, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Moses says, okay, I will. Think of Sinai, the mountain of God, where you see peals of thunder and lightning. You, you, it was seen, the manifest glory of God in the Old Testament. And people say, you, I don't want to go near. And God says, because he's so kind and merciful, don't even touch the mountain. God is seeing, sorry, Elisha is seeing the, the awe-filled, the knee-knocking, pure glory of God. He's seeing something of the majesty of God, the justice of God, the purity of God, the holiness of God. He's hearing it, he's seeing it, he's sensing, he's feeling the very Shekinah glory of God. There's not one person in this room who lives by their own standards. Yeah, we all have our own metric by which we seek to live. We judge other people by it so we can feel superior. And yet I fail my own standards so regularly. Now how on earth can I say to God that I'm an impressive person? Because if I can't live to my own standards, there's no way I can live to his standards. And here's Elisha. And for the first time in history, he is seeing the reality of the glory of God come down 
but it doesn't sink Elijah. Elijah is not consumed by the justice of God, is he? Elijah, <laughs> Elijah is not sunk by the glory of God. Actually, it lifts him up. Elijah is not uh, sent to hell because of the purity and holiness and justice of God because of Elijah's sin. Actually, the justice of God pushes him to heaven. Elijah is not separated from God by the purity of God and Elijah's sin. Actually, it unites Elijah with God. And Elisha will not be able to figure out what is happening in this unique moment in the whole of the Bible. He doesn't understand what's going on, but we can because of the cross. When Jesus Christ came, he said, I have a, a baptism of fire to undergo. And when he died, there were flashes of thunder and lightning. There was the glory of God revealed and, and, and the majesty of God was seen. And only because Jesus Christ was sunk beneath the justice of God, he's immersed in it. Right up, he sunk right down. It was above his head. Because he sunk under the justice of God, that means we never will. The justice of God, because of the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, is no longer after us. Actually, it pushes us towards heaven. Because it's satisfied satisfied in, in the sacrificial offering of his son, of Jesus Christ. Where do you get confidence for ministry like Elisha received? Notice he, he kind of rendered his clothes, but then he was filled with confidence for ministry. Boldness, poise, power. Where did it come from? Because he saw something of the glory of God. He saw Elijah ascending. And as Daniel so helpfully said, we've seen more than that. We look back and see Jesus Christ ascending. And as Jesus ascended, it's, it's the great vindication that God gives to his son. That I accept your offering on the cross. And I approve of all those who have faith in you and are in him. That means the pressure is off. That means you can have poise in life. That means you can have confidence to fulfill your calling to tell your friends about Jesus no matter what it costs. And you hear the call of God, perhaps even for the first time this morning, and the one thing you need is to repent. You need to lay down your pride and humbly take hold of King Jesus. He's the lifeguard. He's the rescuer. He's the one who pursues you when you're going in the wrong direction with compassion and mercy. You become a servant of the word as you hear his voice explained. And then you burn your plow. You don't say, I'm going to try her hard to uh, follow you. You answer the call by burning your self-reliance and you trust in the Lord Jesus. You've got to see what Jesus Christ did for you. You've got to look at him who took his lethal justice, the justice of God in our place. And when you understand that, you can hear the call of God. That's very general to be like Christ and is very laser-guided and specific to reach the lost for his glory.